0: What's Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure. And today we're crossing over to London, UK, to catch up with Michel Maskelier, which everyone here in the industry who's been around the media space specifically would know Michel from his 35 years at IMG. And obviously, this is what we're going to be spending on um, and digging deep into his uh, incredible career over three decades there with clearly one of the biggest agencies in our industry and maybe is the biggest now and all the amazing things what happened over these 3 decades the different leaders of course who came along and some of them unfortunately passed away you know and uh, Michelle had a chance to work with and of course the you know incredible stories around this amazing company does so welcome to the podcast Michelle my pleasure yeah, I'm looking forward to this here. This is, uh, as I I've had a couple of folks in there who had certain periods at IMG, uh, but I've never really had anyone like yourself on it who has been there for such a long period of time. And so learning more about IMG and, of course, hearing some of their stories is, is going to be quite exciting and interesting for everyone here, I'm sure. Now, as we always do, and, uh, you know, as we, we kind of start a bit really how... The, the person got into the industry and, and how it a bit all started. And of course, we will mention this a few times during the conversation, you've also just in the process of releasing your first book, which is called This Is Not a Dress Rehearsal. And I had the privilege to have a copy and read it. And so, I, of course, I know a little bit more about it. But I'd uh, love to hear your start coming out of uh, sort of uh, small, not small, but, uh, you know, Belgian city. And landing in the big UK in London, there and uh, and how it all started for you.
1: Thank you very much, Marcus. Let me just clarify, if you don't mind, I, I no longer work IMG at IMG, and and it has been the case for a number of years now. I mean, right. I've I've, um, I've left probably five years ago, but indeed, um, it's been an incredible journey incredible on many fronts because I was not destined uh, to, to this. And I th- certainly didn't think I was destined for it. I was a, a student, a law student uh, at the university of Louvain-la-Neuve in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And I was involved in so many activities uh, ranging from, you know, participating in the life of the student union. We had our own bar. I was organizing public speaking competitions, sports event, you name it. Right. Um, and. Uh, without realizing probably i was a promoter already at the time but i was a student and making the most of every day right then ultimately when i got my diploma i just say well you know i'm too much of an an adventurer or a rebel um and I, um, I i couldn't see myself spending too much time uh sorting out legal cases with all respect to the profession it it didn't fit me mm. And I said, OK, now I'm going to live the dreams. I'm going to, you know, pack my car. I had very little money. And then I went to, you know, what I thought was going to be the the promised land, potentially. Couldn't speak <laughs> English. Went, you know, across the channel from Z Bridge <laughs> to uh, to London. I um, went to Dover, then to London. And, and that was it. I mean, I had no friends, no contact, uh, very little money. An old battered car, and that was the start of my uh, of my professional life, so to speak. And um, this moment, as if it was yesterday, that was thirty five years ago. But I really, I mean, I wish I could live it again, if anything. Yeah. So, I well, what can I do? And then I went to uh, an English school, and you know, bored to death after two weeks. I've offered my services for free in a in a in a law firm, and the guy liked me very much. They said, "Yeah, sure." You know, you can um you can hang around in the office and see if you can be helpful. And while doing that, I was looking into files and I and I found find out that you know IMG was a client of the law firm. It was called Nebro Nathanson Solicitor at the time. I mm. said, Oh my just reading this fascinating book about Mark McCormack, all that they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. Yes. Which by the way is still selling these days. And and uh, that was the time of the release and and it suddenly i just felt like there was some form of eureka moment for me i just right. say well i i I, th- I think this is for me and uh, i remember my student years and i was some sort of a promoter an organizer you know some form of leader and and i say well, if i could uh end up in this company i i'll find a job which would suit me perfectly well and that was exactly what's happened so I asked neighbor Nathanson if they wouldn't mind, you know, sponsor me or recommend me to IMG in London. And my CV landed it on the desk of, of the guy at the time, you know, Ian Todd, who became my boss and, and my friend for, for the next 30 years. And then um, I went for an interview and that was the beginning.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And and I remember in the book, of course, you go in much more detail of, of uh, that channel crossing and, and staying in a, in a little cheap uh, sort of house there and all this stuff. So, you know, anyone who, you know, will read it uh, will see more, more of the background of that. But um, so now we are at IMG. And, and just to give the frame here, I think we're talking 1985, right? Um, Just to give a sense of the year we in here uh, when you join them. That, is that correct, right?
1: It's correct. Nineteen eighty five was the year that, you know, the fax machine came up in the in the market and was a revolution compared to the telex, no mobile phone. <laughs> Just to put
0: uh, yeah it's a long time ago uh, now let's let's you know and and with i you know i always like to to kind of break break these things into little chunks here and, and so let's talk a bit about that first decade right the first 10 years in the company 85 to let's say 95 around that time um you know you were at the whole time in the london office or where was uh, where was sort of your first sort of 10 years of with the company
1: no, I mean, first of all, the first job I got, you know, I had, I had to, I had to find a, a point of entry, and uh, you know, I refer always, like you know, to what's your ex factor. My point of entry said, okay, well, I was a lawyer, may I as well. I right. spent seven battling to get that piece of paper, may I as well use it. So I said, uh, listen, I mean, I, I, I'm a lawyer, and I've got some contacts and friends in in Belgium, and I know very well, you know, Stella Artois or the, the at the time. Leading uh, rocket manufacturer and mm-hmm. Côte d'Or and Godiva chocolates or whatever. I mean, I knew the, I knew the brand. I didn't know anybody, but I, I <laughs> like I say, give me a chance. Yeah. And then the best tool to kind of break break the lock and get into the company. I said, listen, why don't we um, agree if it's okay with you that I will offer my services for free. And when I um, and when I start making money for you, you guys pay me what you think is fair. And that was that was the spirit of the beginning of the journey. And that's why I'm saying this is because it's pretty important. Like you know, when you have an objective and when you are absolutely determined to reach. A goal or 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 a stage in life, you really have to go for it. And that that was for me when I just say, "Well, that's it. It's my job. Is this is the company I want? It suits me like a glove. I really want to go for it now. I need to show like my determination. And 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 where there is a will, there is a way. Yeah, and that yeah,
0: was well, it. I, I love that. And, and it, I think it, you know internships are great ways to get in the industry. I've had many of the other uh, guests you know who started similarly. And now again, but it, let me let me just stick for for a minute here, and you know the mindset you had because being an intern and not getting paid means you gotta feed yourself in some other ways. Um, you know, so how do you know, or how long did it take you before they finally said, okay, fine, here is a little paycheck? I mean, just give us a sense, sir.
1: Right. Well, I was not totally broke. To, in all fairness, I had a bit of money coming in, uh, but not much. And I remember my rent was um, uh, fifty, fifty-one pounds to to uh, to be in a, well, okay. you know, with other people and uh, and basically that was my exposure before starting the starting the day yeah. uh, one pounds a week so that was um, that's where I started it and I had to find weekend jobs and I was kind of doing little odd jobs here and there and you know I, okay read, read the book you'll you find <laughs> the story I just want to I want to try to stick to to your question um so i i basically got um the opportunity to uh prove myself uh, originally i worked in the legal department and that was perfect because i was reading contract after the contract that was a learning path yeah. but you know speaking hardly in english you can imagine how useless i was N- not only useless but i was totally counterproductive for the guy i was working for right he ended up some sort of a nervous breakdown, but there was a good connection with with the people I was with. And, you know, from from the post room to the guy of the first floor that was, you know, and the office of IMG was not big. It was still very much like a family atmosphere. And I was making myself helpful here and there. And and then suddenly I got the opportunity to... um, to, to sell or to, to help in certain contract. And one contract was there with their Procter and Gamble and, and <clears throat> it was in Brussels. So I said, Oh, I, I know the people in Brussels, I can help you to implement that campaign. So something like probably two to three months, two months after I started, I, I got my first pay and that was just enough to cover my expenses. Mm. And I, and feeling the feeling of achievement when you get your first pay is just like oh my gosh this, there's nothing better than that yes. and that's the big of what became the journey from intern to chairman yeah, yeah exactly yeah, which is
0: amazing um so we'll uncover some of that here in the next hour as we go through this um so now we're okay so we're in the first few months of your internship you sort of get, you know finding your way through it um you know making yourself helpful wherever you can right and and I guess using your relationship into into Belgium into other countries where your language skills are better <laughs> than your English um that's how it sounds like right so you know where did where did that take you then I and mean, if you sort of look at then the first few years um where would you say you know you finally had a proper business card and uh and you were you know you felt you were really part of the company what, what was the sort of the first project or things you were doing
1: Business card is, uh, was, uh, it was written corporate consulting. And I was helping companies. I mean, what I would think you would call that today sponsorship activation one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were advising, um, brand and how to be uh, present in the world of sport in a, in a very proactive way. So, so right. how you activate presence. And, and the first big account I had, which, uh, got me to go and spend a year mm-hmm. in Paris. Was Yves Saint Laurent, and there was a brand called Kuros, mm-hmm. and Kuros Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, this, they, 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 wanted to um, to develop this very strong image, and we came up with the concept of uh, bringing uh, Kuros to sponsor Mercedes um, in endurance racing, starting oh, with yeah. 24. And um, it was pretty gutsy because Mercedes, you know, pulled out after this dreadful uh, uh, accident in, in Le Mans, killing many people. But that was the first time they were going to consider to come back. And we brokered that deal, uh, bringing, bringing a sponsorship. But most importantly, we've built a, a, an entire communication campaign around endurance racing, you know, going from from one 24 hours event to to the other one and and doing a big big party. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent was inviting like 200 300 guests for the 24 hours. In we were renting two train in the station in Le Mans, like the Orient Express train. With with we we turned them into a hotel. There was also bar and restaurants and and commuting. Uh, you know Yves Saint Laurent, <laughs> jet set profile type of people into the the trucks or the uh, the. Uh, the, the the noisy twenty four hours um, race environment that was that was really fun and uh, so I did that a bit less than a year and um, uh, when it was over I uh, I felt like I, I wanted to be more like commercial and more proactive there's nothing wrong with the consulting division but I I felt like if I was going to get involved in sale you know I'll I'll be I'll be more of a contributor, and I'll be rewarded accordingly. And this is when I switched. Nice. I, I would, I don't know, it's um, I can't remember the years exactly, but it was in the region of nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty nine, something along those those dates. Right, right. Uh, and so, what was the first part you were selling?
0: You were on what on the sponsorship
1: side of sales? Um, so there was, so he, he entered, was in a former uh, Olympian ski racer, a brilliant lawyer, a, a guy with this kind of enormous charisma, mm-hmm. He was the right-hand man of um, uh, of McCormack, and he started the business in uh, in London. And he was effectively kind of surrounding himself uh, in, in the true spirit of, of IMG and McCormack by a number of people who could be very helpful in you know, uh, having this very proactive uh, approach, thinking like, oh, well, that, that business existed as always, but no, everything everything was very much of a pioneering spirit. Right. You know, we went from athlete management to, to events and much later on into the business of media. But, you know, Managing Athlete, which was McCormack's uh, start, you know, went into events. So we had a number of events which were organized in Europe and Yen uh, needed people to sell those events. So right. I just say, well, I'm out of language. And there was six or seven people which created the European sales group. And here I was. I was just basically with whatever you have, a, a telephone line or <laughs> when give you're in the airport. Give me a Who's proposal.
0: The- give me the, Give me the yellow pages and I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's how it started i know i remember i think i used yellow pages still when i started selling which was a little later than you did but uh yeah that's how we did it at those days
1: selling sponsorship for anything anyway i mean just you know which company do you know who's the head of uh, yeah. of marketing yeah and uh, and and sell whatever you could sell and that was that was really really good fun
0: yeah, so what? Just give us a bit of a frame here. What type of events were was IMG heavily involved? Is it already was it golf? Was it tennis? Uh, what was sort of your flagship kind of projects at that time?
1: Yeah, well, IMG has always been market leader in in golf and tennis, which where Macomick started was the client reputation. Right. And- it morphed into event in the same space, but but it was it was anything. I mean, you know, we could we could go to any promoter, any organization, and say who we are. Everybody knew about McCormack and IMG, and say, well, we're going to sell, you know, for a cut, for a commission. And, All right. Uh, we, so you we, were
0: not just doing your own events, but you were also selling on behalf of others. Got it? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe just just give me an example of one of the big ones you remember, um, and you uh, you know you did a nice deal with, or maybe your first big deal which you remember.
1: Well, there was a very small deal I have to say, especially when you are uh, you know my my uh, my playing field was was Benelux, yeah. but there were. Um, were, we had a few international companies based there, or, or some international brand, and Stella We did a few deals, and DHL International was based there, so I make some deal with DHL, and I, and I find a way where, you know, DHL was going to sponsor Jim Courier, and uh, when Jim Courier became number one, I thought it was a good idea to go to DHL and say, well, you know, you're number number one courier company, and you know, Jim Courier mm-hmm. is number one with. Would it be a great fit? And they say yes, but we're not a career company. (laughs) So the guy say, Well, fine, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Uh, That that's that sort of things. I remember we went to Munich. If if there was the big Master uh, Tennis Masters uh, Cup at the time, the Uh equivalent of the series finals, and then. uh, and uh, Tyriak was in charge of, uh, young Tyriak, and he said, okay, well, shall we get our efforts together? And we were a group of five or six people. We went out there and we were trying to sell anything we could, we could from hospitality to sponsorship, anything.
0: Uh, I love it. Now, you said you were in charge of Benelux, but you were based still out of the London office or where were you at that time?
1: Um so I was based in London office to start with. Then I had another, another Eureka moment, and, and that was a very big one because, you know, uh, Jean-Claude Killy, who was a client of ING, mm-hmm. uh, Jean-Claude Killy uh, became the president of uh, the Winter Olympic Games, the Kojo, Right. Uh, Albertville 1992. And Jean-Claude Killy entered and said, listen, I mean, I've got this... Uh, position and he was co-president with Michel Barnier that you know we, we all know now uh, what he became. but at the time he was a politician and uh, and he was a politician for the region <clears throat> and he was a co-president for the Winter Olympic Games. So we put another squad of mercenaries put it this way. And again, speaking um, speaking French was a great asset so I was I was sent to Paris hmm. and I lived there again for a year and a half. And we did, we did something quite exceptional, I believe. In, in collaboration with uh, uh, the, the local team, we've raised uh, more money for the Winter Olympic Games uh, in France than for the Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles before that. If okay. we, that club, uh, we're talking about seriously big numbers and all the top companies in France. So uh, it, it was for me, so suddenly you more from a sales guy who sells anything to suddenly, you know, the guy we're going to speak head to head to the uh, top guys like Creed Lyonnais and Renault and uh, whoever, right. and and talk about serious business and serious communication program for the for the world's on the world's biggest stage, which are the Olympics, Absolutely. and that was that made me a, a change emotionally, mentally, intellectually, and and I kind of felt, oh my gosh, I mean now now I'm in the groove. That is that is something which is special and i and i still remember now you know a big moment in your career that was it
0: and i love it now uh, question here on you know you are a lawyer by training um that doesn't make you a salesperson right away right but clearly it sounds like you had a little bit of a knack for that you know you were a natural born salesperson you know how did you or how did you kind of fall into it you felt it was just a natural thing for you or took a while to learn
1: the tricks I, it's a, great, a very good question. I still today I'm kind of asking myself the question, and and I've interviewed many people. I mean, you know, in many different parts of the world where we're building the team, and and I always always try to find what sort of animal I have in front of me, and and I ask the same question to myself. I know who are you? Are you a fish? Are you a bird? Are you an <laughs> operator? Are you a negative sales guy? Are you a uh, you know somebody is going to be more like in the servicing industry Are you a risk taker are you a, are you a rebel? finding your identity is pretty important especially yeah. when you need to pitch it to to others and right. and uh, and get a and get an outcome so i i'm a lawyer by i would not say by mistake but because i'm i wasn't sure i mean i didn't like school and, and when you don't like Things like educations, then you bad like anything. If if you're not passionate, you bad. Simple as that. Mm. On the other end, I was kind of popular in number of area. Uh, I was very social, and I was entrepreneurial. And then I kind of felt like you know trading content. You know, I, I was making pocket money selling cigarette in uh, in in uh, when I was in 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 my early years of of college, right. or or, or like that. So I think in my DNA. I was more of a salesman than than a lawyer, but being a lawyer gave me a respectable face. And and I've kind of, <laughs> that's who I am. That's yeah. the sort of person, sales guy, no shame about saying that. But when, um, when you have the chance to work in an organization such as IMG or any uh, of the agencies, if you don't have the heart of a sales guy, I don't think you can succeed. Right.
0: Yeah, and, and I totally agree. And, and I've had you know many other guests on a call who, I I said, many of them had a background in 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 legal, right? Uh, so it doesn't seems to be uh, there is a trend in the industry, and of course some of the you know founding fathers had legal backgrounds as well, etc. Right? Um, so there's obviously you know there, there's something about it uh, which is interesting, and uh, obviously you another a great example of it. Um, now let, let's let's talk a bit about. Obviously, the man you were working for at that time, Mr. Mark McCormick, um, very much alive and kicking and in charge of the organization. Uh, when was sort of the first time you met him and or, you know, uh, had that interaction, the first interaction with him? Um, and, and tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, it was very peculiar because, of course, the guy had the Nora. And he was kind of constantly on the road, and he's going from Wimbledon to the Open Championship, and he's going from one event to another. And in between, he goes to all his offices around the world. He get his close executive around him, and they, you know, set up the strategy and the war plan. and This is what we're going to do. And and talking about in an in, in inspiration innovator. I mean, that guy was. I mean, still now you know, the way how he was communicating with executives and the way he would project his vision of the future is equal to none. I've never seen somebody with so much like a vision. Hmm. And and I was in the fray, but honestly, very far behind. Okay, so uh, the meeting was finished while I was kind of walking into the room, put it this way. But... Uh, one year I wanted to go to Wimbledon and then uh and I said, Oh, can I get tickets and so on and so on. and I happened and I happened to bump into him and I introduced myself. I mean I just you know and I said, So oh, I'm my name is Michel Masquellier and so on and so forth. And since I said, Ah, I heard about you I said, My gosh, I mean what's happened? I I I must have done a deal or something like that no so you're the guy who goes and play golf in the you know before coming to the office i say, oh mg if you need an element of x factor i mean that's that was a pretty big one so what's happened is that and i opened the bracket. stop me whenever you get bored of it but I I, I I i like to play golf but i had no money so what i did it was kind of waking up at 5 30 uh, in the morning oh, yes. and i went to Wentworth golf club uh, and at the time i no membership but I was there before the gardener, so I kind of opened there. I played <laughs> I played 12 holes before coming to the office, coming back to the office, tell the story to all my friends and say, you're crazy. I mean, you, it's it's illegal. You can't do that. They say, well, I'm going to do it until somebody stops me. And I arrive at 9 o'clock in the office having played 12 holes. So that was a little bit of an aura. And somebody repeated that to McCormack and I said, That's oh, you're that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I had my and then I you know surprise surprise I was invited to the next meeting and then in in that meeting again you know you you follow your heart and and if you uh, if you're not scared of making yourself um ridiculous then then you know you, you try to intervene come up with ideas and suggestions and and start start building a reputation.
0: Absolutely, no, no, I love that. Um, you know, I mean, again, if we jump a bit later into the your career there and stay staying a bit on Mark here for a minute, um, what was the sort of you know where you know you you referred to it earlier already, saying you know you had this amazing vision um, and and his leadership style, right, um, innovative, etc. Uh, where, where would that? What would have been an example which you saw where that would really you know you can use your
1: let me rewind just a little bit so we finish the first decade because this is yeah. when things started going different. So yeah. while kind of in my Kojo experience, the Winter Olympic Games, I you know that was leading up to 1992, which at the time mm-hmm. was a big deal. Brussels was going to be capital of Europe, and I went to Mark and Ian and say, "I think we need an office in Brussels." I mean, there's no representation. Say, so, Yep, yeah, good idea, perfect. We have to, we have to." Right. So. Plus two people, really. I mean, maybe three, and then so so then I started to establish myself, and I and I then we re- kind of joined a European sales group, but in a more structured way. After my uh, uh, my my Paris escapade for the for the Olympic games, and and I started to organize event. That was the uh, uh, the Doné Indoor Championship. I had 14 of the top 15 best player uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we organized the open open golf. Um, I, I thought it was a good idea to maybe try um, to organize some, um, uh, classical music event. We had uh, opera singers, and uh, and I was the promoters of, uh, of of that sort of thing. And effectively, the the beauty is that as long as you make money, go for it. And right. and I was I was getting quite excited to to do that. And I've done that for a, for a year or two, maybe three. Right. And then suddenly. I had this kind of um, search search for my soul moment. And I said, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's great, it's all fine. I've done that for nearly 10 years now. And uh, I, I just, I, I need to reinvent myself. And uh, and again, I went to my boss at the time and I said, I'm really sorry, I don't want to let you down but I just feel like I need to do something different with my life and then uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna resign. I say, really? What? So you so say, what are you gonna do? I say, I just feel I'd like to start East and coming back West. I wanna do around the world tour. I've got a bit of money in my pocket now. I'm gonna backpack around the world and, and live all sorts of experience. And I was, you know, very deep into um, analyzing and understanding other religion, try to create my own one. And in the end, said, "Well, I kind of envy you, but good luck. If you come back in six months, we take you back. And if it's more than that, you know, good luck with whatever you uh, you want to do with your life." Right. And I came back. I came back um, six months later, and I and I, I, I grew my hair, and I I spent a lot of time in the South Pacific. You can imagine the look I had when I came back, <laughs> and I arrived. And I arrived in the, uh, the, the New York office, actually, uh, of, um, uh, of IMG, and that was at the time of the U.S. Open. And I'll never forget, I pushed the door, and I have the look of Bjorn Borg. And then there's some people just come next to me, they help me with my luggage, they sit here, they want a drink, you know, what can we do for you? And so, <laughs> my goodness, to so see me back. You know, the prodigal the prodigal boy kid is coming back to IMG. <laughs> taking me for a tennis player, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the comeback. and yeah, I uh, and I was kind of say like I would say the end of uh, of my first decade. Mm-hmm. and then and the second decade, and I'm sorry, I've done a bit of a detour to your question is no, you know, I, I got involved in media and and media was to me, you know the right time. you know it's, it, being at the right place at the right time and and creating your own luck and and uh, opportunities definitely uh, was for me to get into into that that groove. Yeah. It's like Gary Play, you say, the harder you you practice, the luckier you get. But that was I've been very lucky all the way, but that was definitely a lucky moment. That was the moment where technology was morphing from you know free to air to pay TV. And opening the floodgate of more content for television, and you know, I was a sales guy, and that was it. So I started basically selling instead of sponsorship. Um, I was the sales representative for a number of markets, and uh, and getting involved in all sorts of pioneering projects. There was there was a great opportunity. Murdoch was opening a channel in uh, in China, and um, and I was sent on a mission, another pioneering mission. Uh, and i went to beijing and to hong kong first and beijing after to try to broker a deal and go to the cfa the chinese football association there were two matches on uh, or yeah two matches on on cctv and we were proposing to produce an extra two matches and i would have the right to sell it to ptv at the time i mean talking about pioneering work we had we had to produce Two football matches at the time, you know some of them were you know on the edge of the gobi desert and then, then you need to be uh, the week after uh, you know ten thousand kilometers further, whatever it was mm. it it was kind of an incredible journey. But all these stories, one put next to uh, to the other, suddenly you know it kind of built yourself up as, a, as, an, as an innovator, as an entrepreneur. As a as a great executive at the same time, with his inspiring his colleagues and so on. So, I have been given the opportunity uh, after landing these kind of success stories to run uh, the sales force in Europe, and uh, it's been probably the beginning of my most uh, pleasurable journey. Because I didn't—I mean, i, I was i was—I'm—I'm I'm very social, and I—and I'm—I would say, a respected uh, person in, in, in an environment of uh, of leadership. But suddenly, to be given the responsibility of other people's life and career, and and how to generate you know the extra uh, value by being a manager, then suddenly you raise the stake, and uh, and it's a different job and with a lot of responsibility and and that was really when and i started to 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 build a team and you know for me sorry it took me 10 minutes to start to uh, answering your question but what about leadership to me being a leader is you need to be inspirational and and in very simple term if you ask me the two basic component of being inspirational i would use the two qualification like you know it's the two elements love and respect why love because you you have to encourage people to go the extra mile in our industry and you know that better than i do you you can only get uh into the 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 good margin when people go the extra miles and deliver the you know the the, more than what is expected the the support of the team and how you build enthusiasm and confidence around you is absolutely key to get to that. Mm. Okay, I had this deal with my executives, uh, friends, colleagues. Um, just to say, guys, if 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 there is success, is yours, and if there is failure, it's mine. But don't let me down. So that's that was the spirit. Mm. So you give the opportunity, you give the chance to your be to your people, to your friend. And it's just like there's no glass ceiling. We're gonna build something as if it was our organization, but the good news is that somebody else is paying for it. So, you know, we're going to take some risk and then uh, sky is the limit. Yeah. So you protect, you empower. I, I was kind of morphing into some sort of a, not like a CEO, but more like like a chief empathy of it uh, and, and, and being very, very uh, loving and caring for the people around me, creating a team, creating a spirit, creating some sort of family. The second component, which is equally important, is the respect side of it. You know, there are there were rules. We look like a bunch of pioneers um, or mercenaries, but there were rules. You know, mm-hmm. the number one is you work hard, you play hard, but you have to work hard. And um, and the goodwill is not enough. We have to produce results. You know, if there is no result, then it then then there's no business. We win together or we fail together. We share. We will share the produce of success. And to me, that was a, the biggest challenge I've had because you know, I was, I was a little bit of uh, rebellious within IMG by creating this IMG media distribution. And I, and I went to my boss at the time, you know, we will come to that probably later on, but suddenly, you know, the, the, the leader was a, a venture capitalist. And I say, well, you can't work in a venture capitalist environment of private equity and ask your salesman to over deliver and not to compensate them accordingly. So we're going to create a bonus structure, which we did. And, uh, uh, that that's being all put together, you know, you have love and respect. One plus one equals four easily, and that very efficient formula uh, is certainly delivered outstanding results. And, and and I'm very proud of this. So I went from being the head of sales Europe to head of sales worldwide, and and from then um, president of IMG Media. But that that was that was really the beginning.
0: Yeah, no, amazing. And, and again, I, I want to before we uh, definitely want to obviously going to touch on on uh, one Fostman, Fostman came in involved in it in the company. But uh, we stick for a minute. So while Mark was still around. One thing I've always heard over the years um, was that, obviously, his level of risk taking um, and, and setting up new events and, you know, then building them up and, and you know, expecting the ex- accepting the fact that new events could lose some money for a few, couple of years. And, you know, then with a lot of hard work, you would turn them around. Um, is that what you saw as well, that, you know, as an entrepreneur, Mark McCormick clearly was a, a true risk taker? Um, you know in a calculated way and maybe to some degree that also was one reason maybe IMG wasn't maybe as profitable as it could be because he just kept growing and, and taking more risk would you
1: that describe that as well if I'm an insider I, I would take a different angle I would say like he was a so, so that he was a spirit of uh, visionary and 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 um, and innovation okay so so he could see way ahead of anybody else where the next revenue stream will come in mm-hmm. and any sense of anticipation was absolutely fantastic yes you may say okay well now we're going to create european tour production right so that was a joint venture with with you the, between the european tour and an and img and and the was the guy who, who did again that that amazing contract which okay. lasts for decades but that was the vision of okay well there is a number of events which are uh, not making money. We're gonna we're gonna help you know with financing that. We're also gonna put a media infrastructure of production. So there's another investment to be done in here, mm-hmm. but we're gonna make out of golf a live product four days a week. Um you know, which is going to go around the world and, and create basically a media product out of something which was not a media product. Right, right. And then sponsorship sale came into that, you know, production television uh, television license fee. Originally, the license fee were not big enough to cover the production cost. Yes, there was a risk, but the vision was the one that I just described. Like mm. you create a product for the future. And it, and it never stopped doing that. Right. More... Being, he was more, he was not a gambler. It was not, I mean, I've, I've worked for for Ted Forsman, he was a gambler. Uh, you know, Ari Emanuel is just like, it's, it's a very different sort of uh, uh, manager, entrepreneurs pushing you to, to take risks because there's a big pictures that we want to capture. Mm. But Mark was much more steady and controlled. But his uh, his his ability to forecast the future was equal to none. And, and it's still inspiring me today to some of the advice that he's given us. I, I can give you two very small uh, little examples. And I was yeah, really please. towards area when area when, uh, a bit before he, he passed away. Uh, we were in Bay Hill, the Arnold Palmer Golf Club, and it was late in the evening. And then he got the media executive around the table and said, OK, guys, I want to. I want to hear more stories, more news, more uh, more project. You know, wh- wh- where do you see this and that? You know, don't, don't tell me we're going to do more of that. We're going to. I, I, I'd like to see something different. Mm. Uh, everybody had their own concept and idea, and then he started pitching some of the some of his ideas, and it was late, and we were tired and bored, and uh, and um, they should say we were kind of being polite. They said, well, here's the first idea. So we're going to put. 10 people in the room, and they're going to be given food ingredient, all exactly the same thing. They're going to cook a meal, and then there will be a jury to decide what is the best uh, meal being cooked. And then we look at each other and say, oh, my gosh, the guy is really losing it now. <laughs> and I've got another idea. We're going to do um, dance, and we're going to turn into a sports, dance sports, and we're going to put all the glitz, and it's going to be an entertainment product. And I say, oh, my gosh, like, okay... We were very polite, but basically we turned the guy down when he came up with the two biggest, you know, nice. format of come dancing and bake-off. Yeah. <laughs> the same <laughs> now, back to back. I said no, 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 no. It's
0: never, never gonna work. Yeah, <laughs> uh, these are great examples, and and I obviously they're in your book as well. And so I remember reading about it, and and I love it. I think it's, uh, it's incredible. I've never really met him, unfortunately. Um, you know, but I did read his book as well, and it's of course it's it was amazingly inspiring. Um, now you know again to sort of transition into then the, the, the period when uh, when Ted Fossman then took over, um, you know Mark passing away of course came somewhat subtle right it wasn't sort of something anyone maybe saw coming, um, you know what happened in the organization I mean was there just a complete shock or everyone knew what to do and therefore you just kind of moved on I mean what what was the, the feeling at that you know whatever period of time.
1: Um, well shock is the right word um there was also a certain element of perhaps um worries from the perspective that you know this sort of business you're highly leveraged and and all the lenders, the bank is kind of saying well without without the captain on board that ship is going to sink
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and and that was really like there were there was some very airy moment where you know you have i don't know how many employees around the world and it's payday and uh and you know the cash needs to come out um out of the reserve and and uh and i wasn't i was in that group you know you know um, honestly i was i was driving amg media and that was the cash cow of the business and we're getting the the, the kick out of that and we were not too concerned about that we were very confident that our business was solid and growing but that was the moment where venture capitalists came in, and Ted Forsman, which is another pioneer. If Mark was a pioneer in sports management in the servicing industry, you know, Ted was a pioneer in, the, in 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 the VC area. Right. And he came in and he wrote basically a check for uh, I think it's seven hundred and fifty million dollars, something like maybe eight fifty. Yeah. I can't remember. Right. And basically, all, all outbidding everyone, he just came in and said, "Boom, that's it. I'm buying the business, a, a new mark, and and the family, and so on." And then uh, he overpaid, and everybody thought, "That's crazy. He's overpaid the company." is like, and suddenly you move from being a business of servicing athletes, servicing governing body, servicing you know a, a number of uh, entities into okay now now we're in the spirit of ownership. So what is it that we own? Mm-hmm. Client management, we don't own anything. Event, yeah, we own a few events. What where else can we invest? What can we buy? You know, let's let's be let's be uh, more ambitious. And that's where that came into the picture. With a certain degree and element of, I would not say naivety, but I was not far from that because the the understanding of the world small, there's very few properties that you can really buy out. You know, uh, you Absolutely. Not
0: gonna... Yeah, yeah. You you're always renting a piece, right? <laughs>
1: Correct. Yeah. And, and so that was kind of a bit of a wake up call in that process. But, you know, there was cash. Uh, he's asked all the executives who wanted to. And that was my chance for me to 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 move from somebody who was earning a salary into somebody who had stake in the business. And uh, and then through a combination of, of you know, buying stock and, and getting option, I was suddenly um, an owner, vertical comma very small one but but an owner right, right. and and that helped me to kind of kind of change change my philosophy and i was uh at the time when i i moved from head of sales worldwide to to president of IMG. but i had my serious fallout uh with um with ted oh, right. uh, effectively he wanted to replace me he said well, maybe you've been in the business for too long he said no ted you you paying me to tell you what i think and i'm telling you exactly what i think that system is not going to work. This is what you should be doing. That, and then I was kind of writing my strategic plan when the guy, feeling was like, you know, you guys are all chasing small little rabbits. I'm going to teach you on how to, how to shoot elephant. But you know, there was not many elephant to kill. We we were genuinely, um, I think, pretty good in what we were doing, mm-hmm. and he wanted to make changes that we couldn't do. So I was clashing. Uh, And I virtually, virtually walked out of the company, um, being half half resigning, half pushed out. Mm. And then, um, and then I did some sort of a comeback. And he said, Michel, I I kind of respect you because you're telling me things that nobody has wanted to tell me before, and uh, and I think you have a point. So what do we suggest? And then we've we've rebuilt. What I thought was going to be the war machine of brokering uh, the business of of media, and creating a portfolio which ended up having over two hundred different clients or governing body or clubs and so on, we built twenty thousand hours of uh, of live content. We were segmenting the rights from live to news to uh, um, uh, closed circuit television to everything that you know now today. That was before you know the digital age. To to the way how we understand it today. Yeah. And uh, year after year, we were exploding the projections. And and from being a, a zero in his eyes, I became like a hero and I became very close to him uh, until he passed away. But he promoted me, I can't remember the year, but I'm, it's going to come back to me in a minute. He promoted me to, uh, uh, I think it's in the year 2000, whatever, um, close to 2010. Uh, president of, uh, of IMG Media, which uh, implied two roles, head of production, I've never produced anything in my life, and then head of sales, and I was comfortable in that. But I, I was kind of uh, merging the two together, and that's I, I did that probably five years, and then an absolute ball. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Now, interesting, and you know, again, obviously a little bit you know about TSA. We've always been a little mini version of some of the stuff you just talked about, right? We've always were in TV, in the TV distribution, and we were competing against IMG at at times. Um, you know, sometimes we won, and most of the times we lost. <laughs> um, you know, we've had sponsorship as well, which we were we, for us was the other way around, right? While we because we had these media relationships, and we always looked at what other revenue streams we could find for people in in asia um and so it was just you know and then events came on the back of it so all the things you just touched on maybe just in a different order but there is a big difference selling media and selling sponsorship right i would always say media is somewhat easier but you have to have the ammunition right you need to have that relationship and those clients um and we all remember there initially you know in the early days we maybe were still working on commissions right and so there isn't as much risk capital in it but these checks got larger and larger, right? Um, you were competing head on, and this is sort of where one of the examples we lost uh, the U.S. Open Tennis and BWF to IMG being outbid by the end of it, where we just couldn't compete with the numbers anymore and the risk, which would that reflect that. Um, you know, now that was already during Ted's era that you guys were aggressively out there acquiring more content and, and really, you know, competing, of course, against other bigger agencies and the little guys like us. Um, you know, how would he look at this? I mean, what was it really? Is it, you know, we just balanced that portfolio and as long as you have a big enough margin in some of them, you can take some lost leaders with others? Or what was sort of the philosophy there?
1: No, what it, well, is exactly uh, the, the, the right timing and the example you're taking. I mean, uh, as much as he was a uh, an, uh, an ambitious and audacious uh, financier, there was something for him which I, I think to his dying days he, he never really got is the concept of a financial guarantees and the risk associated to that. <laughs> and I had a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, fallout because I said, okay, now we're going to bid um, $100 million, and I believe there's $125 million out there, uh-huh. and we're going to take a ten commission, so we're going to take the next $10 million. If we do a three-year contract, this is the projections, and uh, and, and here is all the Columbia. Yes. And I said, Miss, I'm not going to risk $100 million. I said, Ted, you're not risking $100 million. It's out there. I know. I mean, this is why we have... I mean, we've opened 30 offices around the world, and we had sales team you know with all your respect to, to your organization or the other you know we just wanted to be uh to be ahead of the game not specifically with the nature of the of the of the of the size of the check that we had to write but we were we were pitching to the governing bodies something which i believe was very unique is it was it was a structure based on three pillars the first one like we had you know, sales guy in every part of the world. We didn't need to go to sportel to kind of sell. Yeah. We have hotel for other reasons, but well, and then so we had market intelligence equal to none, and and sales guy we knew exactly the value of things. Then we also had uh, the second pillar is like when we had a, a golf division, a tennis division, in a, a a motor racing division, a football division, and those guys they knew before anybody else if there was going to be an up-and-coming ladies, Chinese players, which are going to trigger, uh, you know, right. increase... yeah, their yeah, yeah. And and that was pretty important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not generous. You really need to be a specialist in the sophistication of the business of sport the way how we know it now, especially. Yeah. And then the third, it's just like, okay, well... What about the right segment? Technology is kind of never-ending, creating new business opportunities. And all these rights segments and all these carve out is the way that when we go to a, a governing body, we sell the three. And we say, Like, guys, there will be no stone unturned. We, we, we will be the one who can anticipate the future and where the money is going to come from, from from area where you don't even contemplate. Uh, you contempl- don't even know yet. You're correct. Yet anticipate. So with these three and and a check, guys. So so you know, that's how we were winning. Yeah. That was really the way how we were positioning ourselves. Now, writing the check, I was it was uh, my my most frustrating moment systematically. And I just say, I, I said to Ted and and all the the army of financiers are telling him oh you know mg media they're really good but it's very risky etc i remember vividly probably one of the worst moment in my career we we had the market intelligence and the way and how to buy uh either buy out or minimum guarantee uh the world cup uh for uh, for europe and 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 the 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 nature of the check was in the region of 800 million dollars at the mm-hmm. time. You know now we're gonna laugh about it, but you know. And then Ted said to me, he says, "I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give 800 million dollars to buy one property when I when I paid 750 million to so buy the, the company. company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ted, not buying. You're not buying the World Cup. You are." offering a financial guarantee and then and i know there is a million dollars out there i can guarantee you i i lose my job it's a you kind of look at me so i don't care if you lose your job i don't want to lose my company if there is no world cup then what they say but during the war there was World Cup. so so i've never managed to convince uh the 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 owners or the or the financiers around the company that we really knew what we were doing and uh business of financial guarantee was the name of the game. Yeah, now absolutely to it and to the reality, you know, the more successful you are, the more you educate your clients, the more you educate the client, the more they can do the things by themselves, yep. or the more if they are to raise the minimum guarantee and and to reduce your profit margin. So what sounds like a good deal, you know, after two or three renewals, maybe, maybe it's not a good deal and the best deal is the one that you don't do. And then let other people to do and you know, I, I like to think that we were market leaders, and we've always been, and and my successors, and I still are. Uh, but the people who were uh, who were very very challenging are the one who just misjudged that. Hmm. They have put too much of a guarantee, and then uh, too little of a margin, and uh, and by misjudgment or bad luck or combination, um, you know, that's where you're you, get you wrong.
0: Know, yeah, absolutely.
1: When uh, belly up.
0: Yeah, and you know exactly. I mean, we we both know the media game. There is an arbitrage game, right? It's always about what you know, the rights are now, what they're currently worth, right? That, in some cases, with with enough salespeople around and and they talking to the market you will get a pretty good sense, right? So if it's, whether it's 10 million guarantee or 100 million, it doesn't matter. It's the same calculation always, right? How much is it now already? Which means if you do nothing else, you should theoretically get that same amount in, right? That's your risk factor right from the get-go, right? So let's say it's 9 million now and you're offering 10 on the assumption that you can obviously grow the value with certain new deals or renewals, et cetera, right? So that's, that, that is, you know, and, and we've had the same conversation, probably obviously on a smaller level, but, you know, with my board over the years, these debates that we're not risking that 10 or that 1 million whatever it is it is you you're risking the, the the gap in between right um whatever it is you may be getting it wrong Right. And a company like IMG, of course, can risk larger sums there. So that's sort of at least my board at least at the end of the day, they got the head around it, right? They weren't risking eight hundred million. You know, if the previous sales of the uh, for Europe for FIFA was already seven hundred million, let's say, I would hypothetically, you're risking hundred, you know, if you at least, you know, if you're only getting back with what the last guy did, right? And so I think that's that's an interesting factor. And of course, that world has even more change, right? Um, these guarantees getting bigger and bigger and of course therefore the risk goes up and that's like what we all know uh, some agencies got it wrong and not, not just even you know in the current environment but even in the old days right that's how IZL killed itself right uh, guaranteeing this crazy amount of money with the ATP tour at that time so yeah there's there's plenty of uh, uh, some of those examples are out there now again so obviously Tet um, you know let the company and, and then again unfortunately also died um, I think in 211 um, and then sort of again a few years later I guess there was another sales process and all of a sudden we got Wme IMG endeavor here uh, showing up now I believe you were still around during that time as well so talk us through a bit that you know that whole transition then um, in that era.
1: Being at the right place at the right time again I've been very lucky to be at that in that situation Ari, who I knew, uh, he was already kind of socializing with Ted, and and then there was a few uh, deals that they were contemplating doing together, and so on. Mm. So I had the privilege of uh, uh, knowing each other. And when when the company, so when Ted, Ted passed away, so you know the estate uh, consulting with um, with with the relevant firm were in charge of putting the company for sale. So I was part of the. Uh, the roadshow as you speak. And I remember New York, uh very intense, uh week after week, presentation after presentation. And when WME came in led by um uh by Ari but but you know with with the uh, Silver Lake private equity in the back in the back right. there was something very different uh from from the others and Ari's got this kind of very communicative energy, where he would kind of say, "Okay, we're going to put IMG and we're going to put WME and we're going to create the world largest sports and entertainment." And that's the vision. Mm-hmm. So the great advantage to uh, uh, to work with Ari and Patrick at the time, um, which became Endeavor, was that the leader was a guy from the servicing industry. He was an agent. He was a super agent, mm-hmm. and he understand understood the business of of, of agency yep. but it kind have of had the best of both worlds you had private equity led by an agent and with you know amb, 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 ambition and and energy equal to none and effectively when there has been a takeover while it was difficult to manage the expectation of a new buyer when you move from a McCormack pioneer to a forceman pioneer mm-hmm. okay uh, you know, already there was no transition from understanding the business model. He was there, and he was already on the next on the next stage on how to grow the company and how to uh, create more acquisition and how to integrate. My um, my advantage again was that you know I was number one. Well, IMG Media was number one in the market. And a very, uh, very um, a journey of delivering more every single year, so that that looked very good in the books. Mm. So we were popular, and I've I've kind of organized with Ari to say, okay, well, this is my vision. This is what we're going to do. This is how we should merge various division within the company, and so on and so forth. And I had already kind of anticipate somehow that. You know, in order to grow, you need to delegate. And for me, that has always been my motto. And when I said, you know, earlier on the arts of leadership, you know, it it implied the ability to be trusted and trusted and, and to create this kind of handover process. And there was more and more of my senior management team, which we take which were taking a position. So when Ari came over and he said, Okay, now you know, I, I'm now the new owner. I say, well, Ari, what do you want to do? Because there is a team in place. Do you want to keep me? Do you want to move on? Do you want to uh, change everything? But that's that's my vision. That's the way how I see it. I said, no, 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 you help me. And then I've introduced him to all the governing bodies. We're spending time with Wimbledon explaining, you know, how the Hollywood industry was going to serve. I mean, all this kind of, a, <laughs> kind of you know, cultivating the dream. Um, but there was a moment for me where, you know i was kind of feeling like i was 200 days a year on the road i haven't seen my children growing and um and uh, it was exhausting i mean i don't think i've ever worked to me life f- from student to uh, img it's it's always been a lifestyle and and working hard and traveling a lot it was a lifestyle i mean i i think it was mark twain who said find the job you like and you will never work again but that is to me. That was exhausting. I mean, mm-hmm. emotionally, mentally, physically exhausting. And I said, to manage another venture capitalist, whom I said, okay, well, are you a hundred million dollar profit, EBITDA? Uh, okay. So when are you going to be at one hundred and fifty next year? The year after, I say, well, well, hold on a second, you know, it's just. And I was kind of exhausted. And fortunately, <clears throat> one year after they took the takeover. Um, I never forget we, um, we were invited by Ari at the Oscar ceremony in Los Angeles and, and just before going my wife has been diagnosed with uh, with cancer and and I was there and I was just kind of all over the place so, so was she and I said to Ari I'm really sorry but this is happening and uh, but don't worry there is a whole team out there it's a Michelle you stay at home don't you worry You know, his his brother was a very important, uh, well-known oncologist. He got me in touch with his brother, you know, with a golden heart. He just helped me to uh, face the new challenge in life. And somehow, for me, it was like the beginning of, of, of my retirement. I still did another four or five years, but I went from president of IMG Media, handing out the business to somebody who was much more capable than me, uh, you know, Yoris Franchini, who basically was already, you know, striking big, uh, new money, new new clients, new everything. And I say, well, okay, well, I, I, can, I can pull out without leaving uh, any broken glass behind me. And, and this is what's happened. So I became chairman of event and media for IMG. I was still trying to kind of... Uh, implement some element of uh, of my vision, but it was difficult. But effectively, I, I started winding down, and I, and I then became some sort of a president, um, chairman and consultant, something like that. When you become chairman, that's usually <laughs> it's bad news. You know, it's like, <laughs> you say, thank you very much. Brother. You're not fired, but we don't need you anymore. Or kind of, uh, whatever. Not not to that extent. But for me, like, well, I had another okay. three or four years. Of Let's say non-compete, put it, put it this way, it was more like a non-compete. But I still enjoyed very much to see like all the time an in investment and the business model that we've created, the division we had, like it's kind of, it survives you and it gives me a, a, a profound degree of, of contentment.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. You well, And you should be proud of, as I said, obviously how important roles you've played to to create what IMG and the company is still about today. So, um, you know, it's great stuff here. Now, let, let's touch on a few more other things here. You know, there's so much more we can talk about. You know, we could do this probably for another hour, but we uh, also, you know, we would be conscious of time here. Um, now, obviously, UFC, oh, sorry, uh, IMG slash Endeavor then ended up buying um, the UFC. Were you a bit involved in that whole process, or not really? Um, that, was- uh,
1: that was already. And then when I said, you know, when when Ari got IMG, and then we've merged IMG WME, there was this big conference we were going in uh, in the Los Angeles area and having. You know the, the vision of the future, and then we were entertained like you know, like a moment where you have to pinch yourself and say it can't it, it can't be it can't be true. We had uh, Snoop Dogg or Lady Gaga coming in the in the bar where we were, and she was they were singing for 200 executives. There. Mm-hmm. I mean that was un- and 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 uh, Ari at the time he was kind of already jumping on the next boat, which is what's next What's the next acquisition, mm-hmm. and obviously the UFC one was something which yeah, I mean I. I was trying to represent UFC and then I was very close to signing a representation agreement and enforcement was uh, invited to invest uh, and, and getting 40% of the UFC at the time. And he say, oh, it's too much. Ari was already involved. And obviously that was on his uh, uh, line uh, of, of acquisition, line of fire, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, And, and- Years later, but I was not involved, no. All right, okay.
0: Well, you know, just to give people a sense here, right? You know, so, Ari or, or uh, Ari Emanuel bought IMG at, for around 2.4 billion, at least that's sort of what's sort of publicly reported out there. Um, so, you know, with Ted Fossman, had bought it at 750. So, there's, you know, it's a good, uh, nice jump there over that period of time. Uh, then you added the UFC um, for another four billion, and then of course um, there was a sort of uh, first round of uh, an IPO in 2019, which was sort of aborted, and and then 2021 until re- recently uh, there was an I uh, there was a listing um, with a 10 billion valuation. Uh, I'm not sure I had enough time to check what the valuation is here at the moment actually, but again you know huge jumps, of course, from you know below $1 billion dollars to a ten billion dollar company now uh you know if you look at it now and i know you weren't necessarily involved in all of those things um at the later part here but you know you were obviously you've been long enough around and you've seen what happened i mean what did you ever you know is that is it a surprise or you just felt that was a natural progression and the company always had that potential to go there and you know and potentially go beyond that now
1: i, I don't think anybody could have forecasted that and then uh, McCormack in his grave must be wondering what the hell is going on and you know he never wanted <laughs> he's always said that was a family business and it turned into this you know multi-multi-billion dollar business but you know you're kind of surfing the wave of uh, sports management and media in particular and it's not it's not like an IMG story yes IMG was number one I mean AMG created, I mean, the industry, Macoma created the industry to to start with, or it was a precursor. Everybody copied. Like you said, everybody wanted to be like a mini AMG or something like that. Somebody did not badly. But the the whole industry, while you would say like AMG always being the head of the competition, and still today, I would think I would think that's still the number one company. and and i I promise you, I've got zero vested interest. I haven't kept a single share whatsoever. I still have my heart in 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 the house, or certainly with some of the uh, executive who are there. But I kind of take take a distance and I see this industry of sports and entertainment because there's very much a blur between the two. Mm-hmm. and And I'm not surprised with the number, and I think the numbers will carry on, and you have new players coming in. And whether it's the likes of the Facebook or the Amazon or the Google, etc., they're going to keep pushing those numbers. I mean, if if there is one new commodity that which is like in addition to everything, is is the word data. I mean, if 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 media brings data to those companies, and they they're going to react one way or another by uh, monetizing live um content with uh fan engagement and data sponsorship activation whatsoever I don't think there is any reason why you know these kind of inflation of values of all the companies and all the players which are involved in this industry I don't see a bubble bursting at all mm.
0: yeah I, I would agree with you um especially uh, like I said if you look at the data side of it, Um, The other part, which is always one of my favorite sort of examples to just showcase, I think, the huge opportunities out there. If if you take clubs, right, with their huge fan bases around the world, right? You know, Manchester United has, you know, sort of claims to have a billion fans around the world. Well, their revenue is not even a billion dollars, right? Whatever it was, six, seven hundred million or whatever pounds it is, right? So they don't even make one dollar per fan around the world. So if you know, you know, with these new ways of monetization, where you know direct consumer approaches, uh, in other ways, why wouldn't a true fan spend a dollar with you every month? That's a billion dollars a month, not a year. Well, and it, you know that may be too simplistic, and you know, but I, did, but I want to use this also for, you know, to, and if you think of it in the larger picture, right? So there, I think there are major upsides for these large federations or rights holders, which you guys obviously represented over the years, and. Um, to, of course, these the big clubs, which, you know, these massive fan bases. So I think that we're both probably see that and, and, you know, in some way or the other, maybe we'll still be involved a bit going forward. What what sort of, you know, before we get a bit more back into your book here, and, and that's a great way to maybe also finish up, uh, What what is it what you're doing right now? Um, you know, you're doing, I think you're doing some consulting work, right? And you're working on a couple of things.
1: Well... When, when I when it was finished uh, my last day of my consulting and not compete and everything um and I was I was invited to do another four years and I think maybe it's the right time you know you need to <clears throat> you need to find and feel the moment mm-hmm. and at the same time you know, touch wood, my wife got all right. And then, uh, you know, the treatment went well, well, well. And, and I just kind of felt, OK, now I'm going to I'm going to use what is the most valuable community in life, which is time. And by definition, the less time you have, the more value, it valuable yeah. it becomes. yes to use time and uh, and uh, I have a bucket list which is which is bigger than than smaller and one one um, of the thing I wanted to do is that I wanted to write a book and then uh, and it's a, it's a story where I speak but I mean, it's it's a series of um, how can I call it it's a series of genuine and authentic um, experiences and it's an honest account to my not only professional journey, but also my, my personal journey. Mm. And I'm speaking to my children and, I, and I'm and i giving them advice the way how I would have loved to have advice when I started my career. Right. And I'm not saying like, you know, this is the rule book on how to be successful and content in life. I, I'm just saying, if if a uh, little Belgian come out of nowhere, arrived in London, couldn't see a wedding dish, had no contact, no relationship whatsoever. And I've managed uh, that journey, which gives me, you know, a kick, like there's no description on on how much fun it, it has been all the way. I'm saying you can have your cake and eat it. You can have a successful career without sacrificing your personal journey. You can have a fun journey without sacrificing your career. And this is this sort of blend recipe that I'm trying to uh, to reflect and uh, and it's coming out pretty soon. It's coming out in uh, in in December, and and that's a new challenge. And I and I want to have new challenge to answer your question. What am I doing? I just want to um, kind of uh, do interesting things, uh, different things, like like I've always done in my life. So during. During lockdown, I, I have a refuge up in the in the mountain in Switzerland, where I live now for the last twelve years. Uh, and then uh, I've retired. I was I was uh, isolating from the lockdown basically, and I was on my own in my hut. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and, wrote and listened to my music that I've not listened for a long time. Open bottle of wine I've been collecting for years, and uh, and uh, having really a, a fantastic time putting all these thoughts and advice together and and coming up with philosophical uh, reflections put it this way and um, and that that was that's that's been the main um, uh, the main um, uh, my main occupation parallel to that I do investments i um, i uh, I also advise some private equity if and when wherever it makes sense or, or governing body but more like on a personal basis maybe for me to a president or something like that this is uh, exchange views nothing formal at all it's not really a, a job It's more like continuing the the, the social journey of uh, swimming in the waters which were absolutely i think you as well and and all the people of our community we are living in in the most exciting environment when when you think about working and and what we've done it's it's been such a ball and i and i I don't think I can retire, and I don't think too many people can retire because it's it's so addictive as a lifestyle. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I I think when people always say, you know, do what you love or or love what you do, uh, it's it's not difficult in our industry, right? Um, You know, if you can't enjoy that and if you're not loving the the energy which, which this industry brings and you know, you. you <laughs> I don't know what will get you excited, um, and and I totally agree. I, I really enjoyed reading your book, um, and, and the stories, of course, um, and like you said, you know, it is it's a nice mixture of of anecdotal stories, of course, from the industry, uh, mixed in with your own uh, perspectives and and, uh, and and your own learnings, right? And and I can see that what you just said earlier that it's written sort of you know that you would pass it to your kids or someone. Uh, a younger generation to go well. Here's stuff I've learned. You know, you don't need to learn it on your own. You can just you know get a head start with with the stuff, and uh, that, that that was good. It was good. It was good. And enjoyed the read there. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, being nervous uh, to get it out there, and uh, I'm sure you know that. Hopefully, the podcast will help for some people to come across it and uh, you know and buy it. Um, now, the part which also I thought was really interesting, reading your book. Um, it's the parallels between the two of us. Um, You know, we're both from, you know, We're not both both not English speakers by by uh, by birth, you know. Being from Germany and you're from Belgium, you know. So we both had our little, you know, I guess challenges. I think when we both started, um, getting into English speaking countries and working there and operating there, this whole concept of leaving our homes, you know, in the sort of good middle class European households there, uh, and out there and trying to run around the world. You in the UK, I started in the US and then landed, of course, here in Asia. Um, you know the whole think about, it. I think we both have a good comparative spirit, at least that comes across in the book as well, and of course a huge passion for the things we do, uh, the hunger to learn, um, and, and this whole concept also, I think you were talking about it in your book as well, this sort of what you call being a possibilist, right? Uh, seeing, I guess, the glass have it full rather than have empty sort of, you know. Um, those are all, there's so much parallels. I, I literally, would, I constantly was thinking, wow, it's funny how Similar, we are, even though we've we haven't we didn't really know each other that well, right? I think we obviously must have bumped in each other at the usual sport tells or maybe having standing next to each other at a bar in Monaco and having a drink. Um, but you know, we were clearly not 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 uh, doing business together and maybe competing against each other in some sense. Uh, but there is so much parallels which I love, you know, the, the networking which you enjoy, um, you know, and even we both created some bike races out of their respective universities. So it's just hilarious how uh, how much similarities there is a, so I really enjoyed
1: that we were saying earlier on you know this is very incestuous and uh, you think it's big but at the end of the day you better not fall out with too many people because you, you can see those people one day they're competitors the, the other day is going to be a partner or it's going to be the master the person you're going to be working with or for And uh, and I think and I think, like, you know, the approach you're saying that, you know, we were probably mixing in the same bars is more than probably is for sure yeah I hope you came to our parties at Sportel by the way. so so the, we did a lot of business in an environment which was unusual, like you know going to an office. i said I said to the sales guys, go out there, you, use your travel and entertainment business to make friends to go and see the world to uh, to make to create new relationships, to seek for new opportunities and And back to your point and to my point is just like you know when you have a, a, a limited amount of time on the planet. And then you can, you know, I quote Marley, like you know, live the life you love and love the life you live. You know, when you have this opportunity of being in an environment where we are, you know, to there's no war, there's no hunger. You know, everything, all the indicators are, are, are quite positive on, on on many economic fronts. And in addition to that, you know, we have happy families and we have uh, and we have the best job in the world. I mean, for God's sake, you know. It, why don't we want to do something about it? I mean, let's just like make the most of it. Just go and and push your own boundaries and um, and that's that's really what what drives me. Yes, indeed, you, you mentioned the element of, of passion, but everything which goes with the passion, you know uh, thinking with your emotion, with your heart and you know, um, being being aware that things can collapse tomorrow. You know, I've I've had my um, I had my son who had a very uh, uh, bad accident when he was four and a half years old. Yeah, he, he Was virtually dying in my arms, and he was resuscitated in uh, in the ambulance. The, the blood was gushing from everywhere. I said, so my life could have been finished from one one minute to to, uh, to another, and uh, and and I'm sure people are going to listen to you said so they didn't have a happy uh, happy ending in in that context but you know you need to live uh, like like tomorrow could be over and uh, and this carpe diem philosophy the seize the day philosophy is really to me what has driven and and I uh, and I invite people who just like you know ask too many questions or don't know about to think to think that the glasses are, are full and that there's no limit as to what you can undertake and that everything is possible. And even if it's not possible, and even if it's a failure, well you learn from your failure and you rebound from that. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of quoting like happiness is not a destination. It's it's a succession of moments. Life is a succession of moments with the good and the bad, and that's what creates a journey at the end. Don't wait to reach the end of the journey to decide whether it was a good one or a bad one and to see how much money you have in your bank account or whatever. Happiness is, is an act. It's a journey that you want to enjoy at every single moment. You know, Gandhi was saying, leave us if we're going to die tomorrow, and that's it. That's, yeah. that's the philosophy. That's
0: yeah, uh, and I and I know your your love for philosophy definitely comes across the book as well, and it, it was these sort of quotes and things you have in there, which was great. I I really enjoyed that. and, and the part which I again I I love the the sort of parallels which I, I was thinking of reading it as you know obviously the book you read Mark's book, uh, and that really. Is he got you inspired to to wanted to work for him and wanted to work in the company there and and then you know for thirty years you were what I would call an entrepreneur right an entrepreneur within a within a business itself helping to continuously build uh, create new things opening offices starting new you know new parts of the business um, I had that same moment with a book uh, from Anthony Robbins which is called Unleash the Power Within. Um, but my journey then ended up being an entrepreneur, right? So I was doing these things on my own in a sense, which is, you know, not that different. Sometimes it just means, yeah, you, the risk levels, I guess, uh, are a little different when you're playing with your own money. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's an that. So we've both been having an amazing journey here, um, you know, and as I said, crisscrossing each other at certain times there. And uh, it was amazing to hear a little more detail of it, um, especially after having read the book now, of course, hearing a little more uh, around it of you know, what you were shared here. So Michelle, thank you for your time here. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I've no doubt others will enjoy our conversation and then uh, I'm sure we'll enjoy reading your book as well.
1: Thank you very much, Marcus. I really appreciate. It. Uh, as you know, I haven't given too many interviews in the past. I, I don't like, I don't like to um, to push myself too much, but I thought on this occasion, I'll I'll make a bit of an exception. And, uh, you know, this is not a dress rehearsal, which is the title of the book, is what has driven uh, this um, uh, this exchange. But I, I want to say thank you very much. Be- beyond this, I really enjoy your um, our exchange of views and a little bit of trip of memory lane. It's quite a good fun. So thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. It always is. Uh, thank you. We'll talk soon.